I want to invite you to turn your Bibles with me to the book of Isaiah chapter 53. So we are concluding a series we started earlier this month titled The Gift of Presence. And of course, this is a, um, an Advent series. It's based on the, the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. Of course, Christ's birth is referred to as the first Advent. There is a second Advent that is coming, and that is when Christ will return, not as a baby, but as a king. And he's coming to rule. And in the scriptures, we see over and over examples that are provided not only in the Old Testament, or not only the, from, from Genesis even all the way to Malachi, but we see instances where the Word of God points you and I to this child that is to be born and the impact that this child is meant to have in the world that you and I live in. So we're talking about the gift of the presence of Christ into our world as God's gift to you and I. But I want to share with you a very quick story that, that I thought speaks volumes to what I'm about to address this morning. There's a, there's a story about a famous violinist who took his, and it's called a Stradivarius violin. It's considered one of the most expensive brands of violins on the planet. And in this case, this particular individual owns a violin that is worth, catch this, $3.5 million. I have never heard of a violin worth $3.5 million. I mean, I see houses that are worth $3.5 million, and I'm thinking, that's, that's fair. But a violin, $3.5 million, that's incredible. But yet, it is owned by a young man named Joshua Bell. Joshua Bell is a young man who is world-renowned for being an incredible violinist. Josh decided he would do an experiment. Maybe you've seen on social media, some people will do experiments where maybe they'll uh, go into a store and they'll tell people choose between 10,000, you know, choose, you know, give, I give you $10,000 or you, or you, or you give $10,000 to somebody else. And I guess they're trying to do to see what the person is going to do, right? So Josh does this experiment where he goes uh, in, in Washington, D.C., he goes to the platform of, of one of the subways in D.C. and he starts to play. And all he's wearing is a baseball cap and a simple t-shirt. And, and like any average, you know, you know regular you know, musician that we see playing on the streets of New York or wherever, Joshua's playing his instrument right in front of the subway. And as he does so, um, approximately 1,097 people cross passing by as he's playing. 1,097 people. Now consider that this is a guy who uh, we are told that he actually plays, whenever he plays at a concert, he gets paid $1,000 a minute. I would love that kind of job. <laughs> $1,000 a minute is what he gets paid to play in front of crowds. And yet for 43 minutes, this guy is standing in front of the subway and he's playing. And of the 1,097 people who passed by, only seven people stopped to listen to him play. And in the course of that time, $32 in change was thrown into his instrument case. $32. A guy that earns $1,000 a minute. $32. One of the guys who actually passed him by, his name is J.T. Tillman. He's a computer specialist based out of D.C. He said, and I quote, I didn't think anything of it. Just a guy trying to make a couple of bucks. That was his perspective. Tillman said he would have given him some cash, but he spent all his money on the lotto. <laughs> Can you imagine? But when he later discovered that he had stiffed one of the best musicians in the world, Tillman asked, is he ever going to play around here again? To which the reporter said, yeah, but you're going to have to pay a lot to hear him play. <laughs> you missed that chance. <laughs> 
There was another lady who recognized Joshua Bell. In fact, apparently amongst the 1,097 people, she was the only one that spotted him. Her name is Stacy. And for about, about 30 minutes plus, this young woman stood in front of Bell, 10 feet away, just watching him. Everybody was walking by. She stood there watching him. And they probably made me, who knows, probably people passing by thought she just, you know, she's just marveling at this, this person is playing. But they did not know what she knew. She knew who was playing. And so for her, she was not going to pass up that opportunity to watch him. In fact, when she recalled the encounter, this is what she said. It was the most astonishing thing I've ever seen in Washington. Joshua Bell, the Joshua Bell, stood right there playing at rush hour and nobody stopped to look or listen. Those who did were flipping quarters at him. Quarters. All I could think was, oh my goodness, what kind of a city do I live in that something like this could happen? Now, one of the things I, I did as I was preparing this message was trying to figure out, of course, it's, it's, it's not uncommon for us to hear of people, you know, meeting a celebrity and they probably didn't realize it was a celebrity or a famous person. Maybe it wasn't until after you had left, or that person had left and somebody's like, did you know that was so-and-so? And you're like, really? I did not know that. I mean, we've all, we've all, maybe that's happened to you many times before. It's happened to me several times before. And so I started to do some digging. I wanted to know why is, why is this typical of us to oftentimes miss you know, people that we should normally have been able to easily catch. And I, I came across a phrase, and I want to share this phrase with you. Anyone, anyone that's a psychologist here this morning, I'm sure you will understand where I'm going. So this practice of not quickly recognizing something prominent because one's attention is absorbed by something else is what psychologists refer to as inattentional blindness. Inattentional blindness. It is a phrase that refers to the, the, our inability to recognize something that is prominent because we are focused on something else, right? In some, in some instances, um, inattentional blindness can be a good thing in the sense, for example, you're driving, right? You want to pay attention to the road in front of you, right? I mean, can you imagine if we were all driving, but every time we see something, we look, and, we, and we're still driving, but we're looking the other way? No, I mean, we, we have accents all over, the, all over the place. We want to pay attention while we're on the road. So there are some instances where inattentional blindness can be good, but then, can I tell you, there's some times when it can be very bad. Like, for example, it was a, in 2010, this happened in, in New York City. There was a woman who was being mugged in broad daylight, and a homeless guy, a good Samaritan, stepped in to help her. In the process of trying to help this lady, he got attacked by the same muggers. And these men violently stabbed this homeless guy. And eventually, they took off. And as this man lay on the floor, bleeding, person after person walked past him. In fact, there was a point where a surveillance camera caught one individual take their phone, and whereas you may have thought the person was trying to call 911, took a picture of the individual and walked away. Another person in surveillance camera was seen coming up to the individual, flipping him over, and apparently it looks like he may have seen blood, flipped him back, and he walked away, and that homeless man died right on that sidewalk in New York City. So there, there are times when inattentional blindness can be very bad, where, we, where the things we're supposed to pay attention to, the things we're supposed to be aware of, we miss. Why? Because we are so focused on other things. Our minds are consumed by other things. 2,000 plus years ago, something significant happened, but was, was met with very little fanfare, is what the scriptures tell us. And it was the night that Christ stepped into our world as a baby. 
There were no parades heralding Christ's birth. There was no citywide celebration celebrating the birth of the Messiah. For most of the world, the birth of Jesus meant little, if anything, other than just an ordinary day. And yet this single event was the most important thing to ever happen to the world. But the problem was that the world was distracted from seeing this incredible gift that God had given to us. Interestingly enough, this unheralded arrival of Christ was prophesied 740 plus years before. The prophet Isaiah in the scripture you're about to read describes Christ, um, and not only describes Christ's birth, but he describes Christ's birth as unglamorous. His life as unglamorous, ultimately his legacy at the time as unglamorous. And we're going to see Christ in the scripture you're about to read presented as nothing more than just an ordinary individual. And yet when we look back, of course, hindsight first is 2020, we know that when Jesus was born, he was born, he was born for significant things. But at the time, those who received his birth had no clue who was among them. Let's read together our text this morning, Isaiah 53. I'm going to read from verse 1 to verse 12. He begins by asking, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we would look at him, nor an appearance that we would take pleasure in him. He was despised and abandoned by men, a man of great pain and familiar with sickness. And like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we had no regard for him. However, it was our sicknesses that he himself bore and our pains that he carried. Yet we ourselves assumed that he had been afflicted, struck down by God, and humiliated. But he was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment for our well-being was laid upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the wrongdoing of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before his shares, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, for the wrongdoing of my people to whom was the blow was due, and his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord desired to crush him, causing him grief. If he renders himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, for he will bear their wrongdoings. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the plunder with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was counted with wrongdoers, yet he himself bore the sins of many, and he interceded, Scripture says, for the wrongdoers. Two weeks ago when we last talked about Jesus being the gift, the greatest gift that humanity could ever receive, we talked about him being a game changer. We define a game changer as someone or a circumstance that comes and turns 
an unlikely circumstance around where an outcome you were not expecting has been completely changed. Why? Because of the activities or the actions of one specific person. Jesus is the ultimate game changer, friends. Because by coming into this world so that ultimately he would die for us on the cross, Jesus came that he might alter the trajectory of our lives. The Bible makes it clear to us that all of us had sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. All of us were deserving, were destined for judgment. But the Bible says God loved you and I too much to allow us to remain in that state and condition. What did he do? He took it upon himself to do what we could not do for ourselves. And he sent his son Jesus to come to the earth and to ultimately give his life for us. And as Isaiah predicted in chapter 53, we just read, Christ coming into the world was unheralded, it was uncelebrated, and yet it was the most important birth that you and I can ever acknowledge. And so what I want to do in these next few minutes is talk to you about how the Savior's birth makes him the Savior we needed, even though he was not necessarily the king that humanity wanted. The reality is when you look at the world and you look at our perspective of, of what we see as, uh, as, as what the makeup of a Messiah or a deliverer would be, Jesus does not really fit humanity's billing. Why? Because sometimes the human mentality is that the one who comes to save is coming to essentially make our lives better in terms of physical, material, tangible things. And yet what Christ came to do is to make our lives better from an eternal perspective. Where even if I don't have all the money in the world, even if I'm not known, you know, like many of the famous people around are known, but when I know that I have Christ, I know I have everything that I will ever need. Why? Because I'm not simply living for this life. I'm not simply living for what I gain in this life, but I live for what God has promised will be my portion for eternity. And so the three things I want to share with you are these. Number one, that Christ came to impact the world rather than impress the world. When we think of kings being born, when we think of, of, of prominent people being born, we, we, we like to make a big to-do about their birth. We like to make a big to-do about their lives, about their accomplishments. And yet the scripture tells us that when Christ was born, people regarded him very little. But here's the thing, he never came to impress. When he showed up on the scene, he wasn't coming to make a, make, make a statement. He wasn't coming to impress. He wasn't coming to simply draw crowds. Christ came to make a difference. Christ came to impact the world. Christ came to touch lives. So, so, so for him, it, 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 wasn't about, it wasn't about him simply drawing attention to himself. How many times do you read in the, in the New Testament where the scripture would tell us that he would perform a miracle and then he would tell people to not tell people? Because, because he, didn't want, he, didn't, he didn't want to create a movement in the sense of where people just are just drawn to what he would do for them. There was a message he came to proclaim and that that the kingdom of God is at hand. And that God is calling men, women, children, young and old to turn to him, to turn from sin and to embrace the life that he calls you and I to embrace. Christ came into the world so that he might impact the world. He might make an eternal difference in the world. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 21, Paul writes that God wisely planned. It was God's plan that the world would not, would not know him through its own wisdom. That the world would not know him through its own, through its own, uh, through its own approach or, or agenda or in its own terms. God's plan was that he would use the foolish things that you and I preach to, Paul says, save those who believe. What was Paul referring to? Paul was suggesting that God's plan all along wasn't to simply come and as if, as it were, wow us or to simply impress us. As much as it was that he came to address the sin issue that was keeping you and I from a relationship with him. This is one of the reasons why I always tell people, here's the thing, friend, we must consider this. 
If God doesn't do anything tangible for me again, I am content. Why? Because He has changed my life. He has made a difference in my life. He has, he has, taken, me, he has taken me from a state where I was hopeless, I had no future, I had no sense of direction. And, and because I walk with Christ, he, he has given me a future to look forward to. I may not have everything this world has to offer, but I know that when this life is over, I have Him. And, I, and it is something I look forward to. And it, it is something that, it, 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 this, this is the very thing that God desires for us to embrace, that, that His coming is, is meant to transform our lives. I celebrate Christmas because, because Jesus has changed my life. I don't celebrate Christmas because of the gifts I'm going to get. Or because of the food I'm going to eat or because of the fellowship I'm going to enjoy. Those are great things, but that's not why I celebrate Christmas. I celebrate Christmas because his birth came and it made a difference in my life. And his birth has made a difference in your life. That is worth celebrating. Jesus didn't come to impress, but he came to impact. But not only, not only did he not come to, to, to but not only did he come to leave an eternal mark. Scripture tells us that Christ came to suffer for the world's sins. Jesus willingly gave his all, even though he did not deserve it. Notice what Isaiah said in verse 4. He said, we assumed that everything that he was afflicted with was what he deserved. You look back in the, the story of Christ's life and ultimately his death. And how many times he was made fun of, he was scorned. Even when he hung on the cross, some would say, well, he rescued others, he saved others. Why can't he save himself? And yet it was for those same people that were scorning him that he was on that cross. Why? Because he understood that this was the only way for humanity to be redeemed. Again, I, you know, and I've referred to this many times, but I refer to it again. Remember in the garden when Jesus was praying? Sometimes we assume that he was he, that he that Jesus went to the cross, you know, you know, skipping and hopping and and no. Jesus understood the pain and suffering he was about to endure. That's why he could pray that prayer in the garden. Father, if it is possible, remove this cup of suffering from me. It wasn't that Jesus was looking for an out. His humanity was speaking. Sometimes we think that because he is God, that it doesn't mean that he is human. He was fully God as he is fully man. So the pain and the suffering that we can identify with, he experienced and he knows firsthand. And he knew what was coming. But yet this is why he would say in the next phrase, Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. What was he saying? Father, as much as this flesh of mine is not looking forward to what I'm going to endure, I will endure it because it is what you've asked me to do. Because this is your purpose and plan in saving humanity. Jesus suffered, but he did it willingly, even though he did not deserve it. I celebrate Christmas, friends, because I know that a Savior was willing to give his life for me. Jesus was willing to die for me. Bible says, greater love had no man than, than this, than that. They would what? Lay down their lives for another. Imagine what would be going through a person's mind to say, I will give my life so you will live. And yet, the Bible says Jesus willingly did that, not for one, but for all of us. Because all of us needed a Savior. There is not a one in here this morning that can ever say, you know what, Jesus didn't have to die for me, I got it covered. No. Every one of us needed a Savior. And Jesus understood that if he didn't die, we were going to die. And so he gave his life for us. 
Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, when people spoke against him, he never spoke back. When he suffered from, from, from what people did to him, he did not try to pay them back. He left it in the hands of the one who is always right in judging. God was bringing forth judgment in, in sending his son to die on the cross. But Jesus said, Father, I will take that judgment on myself, though I know it is they who deserve it. I celebrate Christmas knowing that Christ gave his all for me. Christmas is all the more sweeter, friends, because I know that my, my Savior gave his life so that I might be redeemed. Finally, not only did Jesus leave a mark in our world by willingly suffering for our sins, but he came to bring forgiveness to all who trust in his name. In verse 11, the prophet said, talking about Christ, said as a result of the anguish of his soul, he would see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. The word justify means to be made right or to be brought into right standing. Again, scripture tells us, makes it clear to you and I that because of our sin, Bible says we are in wrong standing with God. In other words, we have already been declared guilty. Why? Because we inherited that nature that Adam and Eve exhibited when they said no to God's instruction in the garden and sin entered into the world. And that inclination, that tendency, that proclivity, that desire on our part to want to do things our way, to want to chart our own course in life, irrespective of what God's will is, to do what we want because it's what we want to do, whether regardless of whether it's right or wrong, Scripture says it is that tendency that condemns us. But through Christ, we are forgiven. I didn't understand this until much later in my walk with the Lord, that when Christ gave his life on the cross, it wasn't so much so that God simply... The reason Christ died was because God had to deal with sin. When a person offends, in order for things to be right again, forgiveness has to be applied, yes? A relationship cannot be made right if there's no forgiveness. Reconciliation is not possible if there's no forgiveness. And because, but because God's focus was on reconciling us to himself, forgiveness had to happen. But for us to be forgiven, that sin had to be dealt with. It wasn't that God said, you know what, I'm just going to overlook it. I'm going to pretend it didn't happen. I'm just going to act like it's not a big deal. No, God said somebody has to pay. Again, I remember the story I heard about a judge who a defendant stood before him and the defendant was as guilty as daylight. And right when this judge had the opportunity to pronounce judgment on this individual, the judge said, I will instead take your punishment for you. And threw himself in jail to, 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 to satisfy the, the requirement of the law that that, that that crime had to be paid for. That is what Jesus did. God didn't say, I'm just going to ignore sin. Or I'm just going to overlook sin. I'm going to deal with sin. But what God says, I will deal with it myself. So that in dealing with sin, I paved the way for forgiveness. So that those who now put their trust in what Christ did on the cross have access to the forgiveness that God has made available to Christ. Ephesians 1, 7, Paul says, In Christ we are set free. Everybody say free. free. We are set free by the blood of his death. And so we have forgiveness of sins. The greatest gift you and I can ever have is knowing that God has forgiven us. Knowing that God doesn't hold our sin against us. Knowing that God doesn't recall our sin. 
That when we say, God, have mercy on me, I am a sinner, I, have, I, I know I have offended you, I know I have violated your righteous requirement, and I ask you to uh, apply the blood over my life, I believe that Christ died on the cross for my sins. The Bible says that as far as God is concerned, that sin is forgotten. God is not going to go back and dredge it back up and say, well, you remember what you did? How should I trust you? How should I forgive you when, you, when you've done it in the past? Forgiveness is available to us through the cross. And our only response is to say, Father, I believe that that sacrifice was for me. There's nothing I can do to earn your forgiveness. Jesus did everything that was necessary for me to be forgiven. And in response, God, I say, God, have your way in my life. I pray that Christmas would be not only a time again for us to celebrate all of the great things that we get to enjoy in this season but that would be an opportunity for you and I to reflect and say, Father, thank you. Because without the cradle, there would be no cross. Yes. Without the cross, there'd be no forgiveness. Without forgiveness, there'd be no relationship. And without relationship, friends, you and I would have no future. Jesus came to change everything for us. So when we consider that, we have every reason to celebrate Christmas with joy. With gratitude. Why? Because he is indeed the greatest gift. And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I want you to know, listen to me. As we are celebrating God's gift to us, the greatest gift you can give to him is to give him the gift of your life. When you say, Father, I know you've been standing at the door of my heart. You've been knocking, waiting for me to invite you in. For whatever reason, I've not yet done so. But God, today I recognize I need to do so. Because I was created to know you. I was created for a relationship with you. I wasn't created for separation from you. I wasn't created to be estranged from you. I was created to know you and to know your best, to know your purpose and plan for my life. And I desire that. I desire to walk in it every single day. That as I know you and as I get to know you more and more, that you're changing my life. You're changing my worldview. You're changing my thoughts, my perspective. God, you're giving me a hope and a future to look forward to. That, that becoming a Christian is more than just about taking on a new religion or taking on religious practices, but now you're saying, I want you to be the center of my world. God wants to be the center of your world. And he invites you to make the decision today. And how do you do that? It starts with praying a very simple prayer. It could be as simple as saying, Father, forgive me. Bible says I'm a sinner, I agree. Bible says my sin separates me from you, I agree. Bible says that my sin is brought me condemnation, I agree. The Bible says that there's nothing I can do to make myself right with you, I agree. But the Bible also says that Jesus did everything that was necessary by giving his life on the cross for me. I agree, Father. And I agree to open the door of my heart to you and to say, come into my life and change me from within. It's very simple. Very simple. I want to invite every head bowed, every eyes closed this morning. Father, what a privilege it is. What a privilege it is for us to acknowledge today that Jesus, you have changed our lives. Father, thank you for saving us. Thank you for sending your son.
Thank you for giving us a future. Jesus is indeed the greatest gift. God, I pray this morning for everyone who is sitting under the sound of my voice that God, they too might know the joy, the joy of salvation. That Christmas, Father, would be more than just a time for good food, fellowship, gifts. But the Lord, it's an opportunity for us to reflect on what you've done for us. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you that our Savior did not come to impress. He came to impact. Thank you that our Savior was willing to suffer for that which he did not deserve. Thank you that our Savior secured forgiveness when he gave his life for us. And God, I pray that for us this Christmas, Father, we are all the more meaningful, God, because we have chosen to focus on why Jesus is indeed the reason for this season. And God, may your praise, Father, always be on our lips, Lord. God, I pray for anyone that is here who does not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that I trust, Lord, that even now, that there are those who are calling out to you saying, Father, help me, forgive me. I want a relationship with you. I need a relationship with you. But I know that sin is in the way. But today I'm rejecting a life of sin and I embrace the life that only you by your spirit can produce in me. I want to follow you, Lord. I want to serve you. God, I thank you that, Lord, even on the heels of your profession of faith in Christ today, that, God, you will save, you will forgive, you will change their lives. The Bible says if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. All things become new. Thank you, God, today for newness of life. For whomsoever will call on your name. Again, God, we thank you this morning for the privilege, Lord, of acknowledging that Christ is indeed the greatest gift of all. And so, God, I pray that you would continue, Lord, to help us to walk in the joy of, of, of the salvation you have made possible in our lives. And, God, may we be bold in our testi- testifying to others in whom we've put our trust in today. Thank you, Father for forgiveness, for salvation. Father, for renewed faith, all of it is anchored in Jesus Christ. For we ask these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen. Amen.